Welcome to the 2021 podcast series of the Psychological Society of Ireland, the PSI, where we bring you interesting and hopefully entertaining and informative podcasts about a myriad of topics. I'm Al Dunn and our theme today is Autism Awareness and Autism Acceptance. Uh, We've two guests. The first is Ruth Connolly of the Psychological Society of Ireland, where she's the chair of the Society's Special Interest Group in Autism. Ruth is a chartered clinical psychologist and works as a principal psychology manager at the Murlosa Foundation, which supports individuals and their families with an intellectual disability and autism to live self-directed, connected and fulfilling lives. And Adam Harris is the founder and chief executive officer of As I Am, Ireland's national autism charity. As I Am provides support to autistic people and their families, advocates on behalf of the community and works to support public and private sector organisations and communities in becoming inclusive and accessible. Adam, who was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome from an early age, founded As I Am based on his own experiences of growing up on the autism spectrum. You're both very welcome along. Ruth, we previously did a podcast on autism which introduced listeners to the area. Can you remind us what autism is and what the spectrum is? I will indeed. Uh, My my colleague Lorraine Madden from the Autism Special Interest Group, I think, spoke to you in December and Mm. that podcast is available on the PSI website. Um, Definitions or descriptions of autism really depend on the paradigm that's being used. My, My understanding of autism is that it's a different way of experiencing and being in the world. It can be described as a neurodevelopmental difference that is innate and lifelong. So that means that autism is present from birth and does not go away. It's not a medical diagnosis that can be treated. There are no biomedical markers or medical tests that can be used to diagnose autism, like maybe another medical condition. Instead, autism diagnosis is a complex process and it currently relies on the presence or absence of specified behaviours. Unfortunately, autism continues to be diagnosed based on medical um, diagnostic manuals. Up until 2013, there were a range of autism spectrum disorders, so including autism, Asperger's syndrome and pervasive developmental disorder. Um, However, research since then showed that there wasn't really any validity in having these different diagnoses. And since 2013, the diagnostic label is now autistic spectrum disorder. Now, lots of us and I think lots of members of the autism community would say that that language is already outdated and that it can be argued that rather than being a disorder, autism, autism is a neurodevelopmental difference. Um, Unfortunately, in order to access services, psychologists and our colleagues, we have to continue to use the diagnostic classification systems that are based on the medical model. But this is mainly due to gatekeeping. So we need to give that diagnostic label in order to access resources. And you asked about the term spectrum. Mm. And that was a term that was introduced by Lorna Wing. Um, And at the time, it was really helpful because it broadened the autism um a diagnosis to include i suppose people with milder presentations of autism to people um with higher levels of intelligence um but there are still difficulties with the idea of a spectrum it suggests a linear model that there's mild autism or high functioning autism or what used to be called asperger syndrome and then that that at the other end there's low functioning autism um, and again that idea is quite outdated um contemporary theories 
would suggest that autism is better conceptualized as a constellation. It circles many spheres. Um, we know that up to 1% of the population um, is autistic and that no two people with autism are the same. Autistic writer Stephen Shore famously wrote that if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. <laughs> Um, so the features of autism that need to be present for a child or an adult to receive a diagnosis um, include persistent difficulties with social communication, social interaction, as well as restricted or repetitive patterns of behaviour, interests or activities. And this can be present with or without intellectual disability and with or without language impairment. And just to say that the, the Psychological Society of Ireland Autism Special Interest Group is currently revising the Irish Professional Practice Guidelines for assessment, formulation and diagnosis of autism. And as part of this work, we're, we're being led by the autistic community and by the changing paradigms around the language associated with autism and trying to re resist some of the maybe negative or pejorative terminology that was used in the past, such as disorder or disturbance. Over the past 15 years, Ruth, I think, or 10 to 15 years, more and more people are being diagnosed with this. Um, how come they weren't, how come this wasn't being caught 30 years ago? Is it because we've just got a better understanding of it now? I think we've got a much better understanding of what, what autism is. Um, certainly when I trained as a, as a psychologist, I was very lucky to have some supervisors in the 1990s who were very autism aware. Um, much of my work has been with people with intellectual disabilities. And it was really only in the 1990s, I think, that people without intellectual disabilities received the diagnosis when Lorna Wing sort of started talking about Asperger's syndrome. Um, there's now a level of what we would call diagnostic substitution. So lots of people who in the past might have received a diagnosis of intellectual disability will now actually receive a diagnosis of autism with intellectual disability. Or lots of people in the past who might have received a diagnosis of, um, of language disorder are much more likely now to receive a diagnosis of autism. We've also learned that there is a huge lost generation of autistic people mm. who never received the diagnosis and who may have been completely misunderstood for much of their lives. And certainly where I work within intellectual disability services, I'm constantly um, sort of discovering people who may have been misdiagnosed as having um, other psychiatric diagnoses such as schizophrenia or personality disorder or challenging behaviour and have been misunderstood for much of their lives. Um, so we know that there's lots of undiagnosed autistic people out there. So while the prevalence rates have increased, we think autism has almost always been among us. I think, and as we record this, uh, we're coming up to the 2nd of April when we celebrate World Autism Awareness Day. Adam, why is it so important to raise public awareness about this? So I think that's a really good question. And, you know, when I would have been um, diagnosed and my mom would have been saying to people, you know, in the late 90s or the early 2000s, you know, Adam has Asperger's or Adam's on the spectrum, I think, you know, you would have had people whose eyes glossed over a little bit who maybe didn't know what that terminology meant. I think we've actually shifted a lot since then. So, you know, if you look at the, the reality that we know one in 65 children in school today now have a diagnosis of autism, but critically, 
86% of those children attend mainstream school, either in a special class or in a mainstream class. And I think the impact that that has had has meant that we've gone from a stage where maybe somebody knew one person on the autism spectrum, if you were very lucky, to the point that I think most people now can point to numerous examples in their community and in their own lives, be it a family member, a friend, themselves, or indeed, you know, they know who Greta Thunberg is, they know who Anne Hegarty and the Mm. Chase is, they know who Chris Packham is, and they have these kind of cultural references to look to. So as a result, I think we've become incredibly aware of autism as a society. I think it's something that's discussed a lot more than it used to be, and you see depicted a lot in media, both factual and and popular culture, where we're falling down is understanding and acceptance. So I think awareness is great. We need it. And there was a stage we didn't have it. But, you know, I'm aware that Mandarin is a language, but I don't speak it. So I'm not much used to anybody who only understands that language. So I think where we look at the barriers that autistic people face, and, you know, Ireland obviously was the last country in the European Union to ratify the UN Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities in 2018. And what that is about is shifting our understanding and saying that, yes, we recognize this personal characteristics that can pose challenges for people who are minorities uh, within society, who have disabilities, who are disabled. But actually, the, the much bigger part of the iceberg, if you like, it tends to be environmental and attitudinal barriers. And if we just look at the sort of barriers that autistic people are facing in society today, we know that autistic people, 85% are unemployed or underemployed. We know that over half will experience bullying during the time in school. And very worryingly, there's increasing research to show that autistic people are actually dying at a younger rate than those who are not autistic for a variety of reasons. I think this is really important because it doesn't say in the diagnostic manual that if you're autistic, you will be unhappy or bullied or unemployed. Hmm. That comes from our societal response. So I think we need to take the awareness that's been built up, but now what we really need to do is support the public in actually turning that awareness into action how we can make small changes to make our society accessible. And I think, you know, as a society in general, I think over the last 10 years or so, we've matured about a lot of issues. And I think the time has come now to to mainstream and normalize what is a part of diversity within our society. I think with the bullying in school, I can kind of see, I mean, people will always bully people. And I think if you're there with someone who is different, they're more likely to be bullied. Why do you think that people are are not finding employment because they have autism? I think what it comes to is when we've spoken about, I think for most people at home, if they don't have a, a huge personal connection to autism, the first image that probably enters their head is a child. And a lot of the time we talk about autism, we talk about children and that's vital. And we know there's massive barriers of support for children in this country, including in terms of accessing assessment and support. And I know the PSI has been very active on that. But I think th- the reality is that you're an autistic adult for a lot longer than you're an autistic child. And we're only now seeing the first generation of autistic people diagnosed in large numbers as children aging out of the school system. And as a result, we need to push that understanding outside the school gate. So I think the the, the reality is that for a lot of employers, when you, if, if you think about a typical recruitment process, um, it's a sen- I spend a lot of my time designing autism-friendly practices and environments and settings. If I was asked to design something on autism unfriendly, I would design a typical recruitment process because it's about dealing with the unknown, answering abstract questions and building rapport with strangers, which is all going to be very hard for many autistic people. So I think it's about really educating people that autism is not just about children. It's about the whole of society and that if we want to be inclusive, everybody has a role to play. It's not just about clinicians. It's not just about educators. It's actually about all of us have it as a society 
having the knowledge we need in order to be inclusive. Are there particular workplaces that suit autistic people? I actually think this is a very common misconception. So, you know, I want to recognize there's been fantastic work done in what I would probably call like fintech and mm. indeed in pharmaceuticals in recent years for specific autistic people who whose special interests might align with those intre- uh, those industries who may have particular focus to detail that works well in those sectors. And that's important. But autistic people have scattered skill sets. That means the things we're good at, we excel at often and the areas that we don't uh, find easy can be very difficult. What we've traditionally done throughout history is we've essentially written snag lists about autistic people. So we made a long list of deficits and, and, and tried to work through them. Now, aside to that being very destructive for people's self-esteem, it's not going to work if you have this gap between skills and strengths. So we need to take a strengths-based approach. We know that autistic people, when we can align those areas of strength and interest, make ideal employees in those areas as a result. Um, I think what's important to say, though, is that means it's every sector of society. And I've seen this in terms of we've done a lot of work in terms of making universities autism friendly, including at DCU. And our experience in university is there's people who are autistic studying to be teachers, studying medicine, studying marketing. So it really cuts every into every aspect of Irish life. Same as every other person. You're good at certain things. You're not good at other things. There's probably autistic people flourishing in, in every type of career mm. currently in society, given the right sort of environmental um, situations, the right social supports, the right kind of working environment. Um, we have autistic doctors. We have autistic psychologists. We have autistic teachers. And a lot of the time, people just don't talk about it or maybe don't disclose about it. So like Adam says, um, every person with autism is different. Um, and given the right circumstances can flourish just like any other person. You were talking earlier on, uh, Ruth, about neurodiversity. I made a a note of it. What exactly is that? Neurodiversity is a paradigm shift. Um, It was based on the work of an autistic sociologist called Judy Singer. And the premise, it resonates a little bit with evolutionary psychology. Um, Just as the natural environment requires biodiversity for the planet to sustain, So the proposition is that human evolution requires neurodiversity, different ways of thinking. The world is neurodiverse. We are all neurodiverse. And within diversity, there's a predominant non-autistic majority, but there's also neuro-minorities, which include autistic people, people with ADHD, people with dyslexia, people with dyspraxia. And what's what's helpful about this paradigm is that rather than it being a medical model, it's a strengths-based approach that celebrates human difference and acknowledges that neuro-minorities, like any other minorities within society, experience disability, stress, and even mental health difficulties in their attempts to adapt to a social and physical world that's been designed for a neurotypical majority. And I agree with Adam, if we're truly to achieve autism acceptance and full inclusion of autistic people within society, we really need to address and adapt our social and physical environments to reduce disability. I think what's really interesting on that as well is is intersectionality. So I think for a long time and a lot of the barriers people still face today in terms of accessing support is autistic people also have mental health conditions at times in their life. Autistic people 
also are members of the LGBT community. Uh, autistic people often have another developmental condition like ADHD. So it's really important we understand that autism doesn't exist in isolation. It's it's very much part of that broader diversity as well. And that just leads me on to something I saw on your website. I mean, some of the some of the stereotypes or the myths about autism need to be dispelled. I mean, you've a, you have a myth busters uh, section there. Tell me about some of this. Yeah, I think there's a huge amount of misconception still um, about autism. Uh, and I think, you know, I think a part of that is the vacuum that exists. I think what's what's very interesting is, you know, that phrase, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. Autism is one of those things that because everyone's heard the word, I often find everyone has an anecdote or a statement of facts that they want to tell you about the condition. And that can be very, very destructive. So it, it can range from all autistic people can't live independently to all autistic people have savant abilities. Uh, it can range from the idea that, for example, autistic people don't want to make friends, uh, which is often not the case, through to the fact that autistic people can't have a sense of humour. So very often what I find is is things that might be true about one particular individual in one particular circumstance can be then generalised to the whole community. Uh, or indeed, deeply inaccurate depictions of autism can lead to a lot of these problems. And I think a very current example would be Sia's recent mu- mu- movie called Music, uh, which has given a very dangerous negative depiction of autism. And unfortunately, when there isn't autistic people represented enough in society, heard enough in society, those inaccurate depictions can stick. And just on the subject of that, uh, Ruth, we often see portrayals of autistic people in the media. How helpful or unhelpful can this be? We were talking about uh, Anne Hegarty from The Chase earlier on. Is it useful to have these people go out and talk about their, their autism? I think traditionally, sometimes um, we saw stereotypes, we saw exaggerated portrayals of people with autism. Everybody has seen the movie Rain Man, and that became sort of the, the societal depiction of, of autism for a long time. Or Sheldon and the Big Bang Theory. I think people like Adam have done an amazing job at changing that. And people like Anne Hegarty, who talk openly about what it's like to be a successful, flourishing person within society. Um, and having a, a strong media personality, um, but also happy to disclose that they're an autistic individual. Yeah, I think the really important thing, I think, is that I think it's great when people tell their stories. I obviously share my experiences all the time. What we need to do is actually support more people to do that, however, because autism, as we keep saying, is so diverse. The only way we can get a true and accurate picture of it in society is if we hear more and more voices. And I think the the challenge is that there's so many voices that have never cut through. I mean, the obvious example is autistic women who are frequently underdiagnosed and under supported. So I think there's a lot of work to be done. And I think the example that I would put, talk about, particularly if we talk about portrayals of autism in soap operas or movies or whatever, is we're still at that stage that if somebody's either maybe talking about their autism experience or depicted as an autistic character, it, that's always why they're there. What, what I would like to get to a point is that we have autistic actors, we've autistic characters, we've autistic captains of industry who just happen to be autistic, but they're there to talk about their subject matter or to play the role that they have in the plot. Ruth, many autistic adults uh, experience mental health difficulties. Are, Are the numbers disproportionate? Um, unfortunately, the numbers are really disproportionate, Al. Um, and I suppose as psychologists, we 
formulate mental health difficulties uh, within a biopsychosocial model. At a biological level, a lot of autistic people have a particular vulnerability to stress and anxiety that's compounded by social and physical environments that just aren't adapted to, to meet their needs. And this can start as early as school. And I know again, Adam, and as I am, I've done amazing work around addressing stigma and bullying in school places. Um, Certainly stressors can be really overwhelming and can result in a neurological system that can kind of crash like a like a computer crashing down, resulting in, in meltdowns or shutdowns. And that's when the mind and body are, are seeking to find an equilibrium again or, or a reboot. So in the absence of, of suitable adapted environments and, um, and social um, interactions, chronic stress can always lead to mental health difficulties. And mental health difficulties that we typically see among autistic um, young people and adults can include anxiety, mood disorders, increasingly eating disorders, um, and even certainly among the people that I support who would have intellectual disabilities and autism, we often see stress-induced psychosis. So this is why managing stress and anxiety is really critical from an early age and while maintaining autistic well-being, it's a lifelong endeavor. And we start really early on by, by helping people with autism understand and managing their, their strong emotional reactions and their particular sensitive um, sensory systems. So we've loads of work to do around that. I think Adam already alluded to the, to the lack of services in Ireland. And unfortunately for autistic adults, there's a huge gap in service provision. Really, there, there are some services within the intellectual disability services, and then there's the mainstream mental health services. But often people with autism fall between the gaps and there are no autism aware psychologists, psychiatrists that are easily accessible. Well, let's just just finish on, on, on that question. If we, if we go to Adam first, I mean, how can we offer better societal supports? Well, I think critically, we need to create a stream for adults. There's really not enough support. And nearly if you were to look at the supports that exist, you would nearly imagine that autistic people see, became neurotypical at or 18 and I think that's disastrous but fundamentally what I think we need is a national autism strategy and um, that creates clear pathways of support that stop making it just constant no's when you're an autistic person really from the moment you're born it can seem like you're just dealing with no's no you can't get support no you can't make friends you certainly can't get a job so what I think we need to do is have a strategy that brings together both the support arm but also the broader societal arm most countries around us including northern ireland uh, have a national autism strategy we don't and that's something we're calling for as part of world autism month this year and ruth uh, just before we go and go to you how can we get better psychological supports for autistic people well I, i'd have to 100% agree with everything Adam has said around a national autism strategy. I, I have some some hope that we have a new um, HSC National Clinical Lead for Disability Services, who's a professor of psychology and is undertaking a programme of reform in developing publicly funded services for adults with autism. And I understand Adam is involved in part of that reform programme. I'd also say that there's an urgent need for, for education, for psychological for psychologists to be autism aware and neuro, neurodiversity affirmative. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your time. I think we've we've learned a lot in the last half an hour. Thank you to Ruth Connolly of the Psychological Society of Ireland and Adam Harris of As I Am. That was the Psychological Society of Ireland, the PSI podcast. If you want any more information, you can check out the website psychologicalsociety.ie. We'll see you next time.